Please turn with me to Job chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 8 to 22. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is the word of God heavy text. Um, one of the most famous lines in the book of Hamlet, one of my favorite books, Shakespeare's Hamlet, <clears throat> Hamlet's at the gravesite, and he's, he's holding, he's peering into the skull of Yorick. You see, Hamlet is the prince of Denmark, and in Yorick, he's a jester for the king, and so, and so Hamlet, uh, he knew him, and he's, and he's now looking into his now skull, and it's this famous line, he says, alas, Poor Yorick. He says, you know, these used to be his lips. He used to kiss with these lips. He used to joke. He used to make people laugh. He used to sing. And now he's gone. That's essentially what he says. In other words, one day, we're, we're going to be kissing and joking and laughing. And we're going to be singing. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be suffering and we're going to die. There's nothing more certain than the reality that you or those you love are going to suffer over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And when you do, man, it's easy. It's easy and it's natural to ask why. And there's no greater book in the Bible, possibly all of ancient literature, that deals with the question of suffering like the book of Job. I mean, one of these years, we kind of have this kind of plan now, but one of these years, we're going to go through the book. It's an amazing book. Um, it's beautiful. It's poetic. Uh, it's really one of a kind, and, and the book spans three acts. The first act, you have God and his dialogue with Satan. We saw this here in this passage that we read today. Uh, and then we see this dialogue between Job and his friends. And then lastly, we see this epic meeting between God and Job. But what you see in this book is really an amazing resource. God has given us this amazing resource on the why of suffering and how to deal with suffering. Keep in mind, there's a kind of suffering. This is not the kind of suffering that comes when you sin and when you lie and when you cheat people, when you just do wrong things. Uh, that's not the kind of suffering. We don't really lament when people go through that, even though, I mean, we probably, I mean, there's still a sorrow there. There should be a compassion there, but we don't lament that a whole lot. This is about the kind of suffering that just happens to you. And, and, and ultimately, those things that happen, it shapes the course of your life. It's one of the most important issues, especially for people who are exploring what it means to be a Christian, and especially for people in the church. So really, it affects all of us. Every one of us struggle with the meaning of suffering, and this passage gives us four lessons about it. What you should know, 
what you should trust, what you should do, and what you should hook into or anchor into. Four ways of dealing with suffering. What you should know, what you should trust, what you should do about it, and what you should anchor into. First, we're going to look at what you should know. Now, <clears throat> when you suffer, we usually respond with, at least at some point in your mind, you're going to say, God is punishing me. I mean, what did I do wrong? You see, and if you're a non-religious person, if you're an irreligious person for that matter, non-religious people, they tend to view suffering as just like a random thing, chance. Prominent evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, in 1995, he wrote probably one of his more popular books in his early years. He wrote a book called River Out of Eden, Our Darwinian View of Life. And he says this, during the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being uh, eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in any of it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. In other words, what Richard Dawkins is saying is there is no God. There is no God, and if there is, he's certainly not in control. He's powerless. So suffering really is random. Suffering is really by chance, and so how do you respond to that? Well, if things are randomly happening to you, and things are happening by chance, Ernest Becker, who wrote his seminal Pillar Surprise winning writer, Ernest Becker, he wrote The Denial of Death. He says, really, the only way that you can respond to this type of suffering, to this type of random chance happening is stress anxiety, just coping with it by kind of averting it, avoiding it, doing whatever you can to eliminate it from your life. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, I've observed that when somebody suffers, there's always that one person in the church, at least one person in the church, that says, well, it's because you're in sin. You've done something. You did something wrong. That's the religious view. You see, contrary to the irreligious or the non-religious perspective, the religious people, religious people tend to view suffering as a penalty, as a punishment. I mean, it is something in you that's telling you that you must have done something wrong. Now, you can hear, you can be in the church, and you can hear every week that God is gracious, that it, everything happens by sheer grace, that this is not punishment, and yet when something goes wrong in your life, especially after you've had a stretch of good days, there is something that's convincing you and telling you that your suffering is a penalty for how you've lived your life. We believe that if we live a good life, if you, then, and if you do good, then good things are going to happen to you. They should happen to you. So if you do bad things, or if bad things happen to you, then it must be because you've not lived a good life. And religious people, in other words, they believe then that God is in control, but he's angry at you. Or he's unjust, he must be cruel. Even religious people ultimately view that, you see? But if you look at the book of Job, and in the book of Job, the God of the Bible blows both of those views completely out of the water. There's a writer, Larissa McFarquhar. Uh, she's a writer for The New Yorker. Um, if, you've, if you're into reading like, you know, short stories and, and just really, really quality writing, The New Yorker, uh, there's an interview that she gives for the Boston Review. And she says this, it's really, really interesting. She says, I think that within many religious uh, traditions, there's much more of an acceptance of suffering as a part of life and not necessarily always a terrible thing because it can help you become a fuller person. And then she says this, she says, secular, I mean, she is, uh, she's a secular person, a worldly person. She says, and secular folks, in a sense, they hate suffering. They, hate, they see nothing good in it, they want to eliminate it. Essentially what she's saying is, there's something about even just religious folks. We're not even talking about Christians, but religious folks. They seem to deal with suffering better. They seem to have some sort of a channel that allows them to see more dimensions in their suffering than worldly people. And so they don't find it necessarily, I mean, it's awful when you're going through it, but they don't find suffering or the nature of suffering necessarily always at end a terrible thing. They find some hope in it. There's a hopefulness in our suffering. Now, in verse 8, there's this fascinating conversation between God and Satan. And God says, look at Job. There's none like him. 
There's none like him in all the earth. There is a man who is blameless. There is a man who is upright. I honor Job. He fears God. He shuns evil. And in verse 9, Satan says, hmm, no, he's like everyone else. If you take away, I mean, you've given, you've set him apart. If you, you've protected him, if you take away that protection, if you take, take away the blessings that he's, he's, he's been given, he will curse you like everyone else. He will abandon you. And God says in verse 12, well, very well, okay. Go ahead, sure. And though he limits Satan, he says, I want you to go ahead. And Satan does. Now we're going to pause for a second here. Some of you are in this room and you're, you're kind of frowning and you're thinking, What? God just said this is a noble person. He's an honorable guy. And, and God and Satan are in cahoots and they're kind of discussing and dialogue how to ruin this guy's life. It's just going to decide to ruin him. And if that's you, I mean, I get it. I get it. It's complicated. It's nuanced. But if that's you, you're going to overlook something brilliant here because what's going on, uh, and, and let me tell you why Job is an amazing book uh, for this generation in particular. Our generation here, we're visually oriented, we're audibly oriented, music and images. And, and so all, most of the learning, most of the voices, it's, it's through the senses. You have Job here, the book of Job. Uh, for this generation, it's an epic narrative. It's a story, and yet it's poetry. And so there is a visual element. There's an audible element almost. There's an imaginative, imaginative uh, element. So there, in this image-oriented society, Job is a drama. It is a narrative. And so the truth is not just kind of didactically taught. It's not didactically explained. It's not like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, like in the book of Romans, where you're being given truth, and you kind of have to process it that way. He's not teaching a class on, on God's grace or the nature of suffering in light of God's grace. That's not what he's doing. This is a story. And what's easy to overlook, because, I mean, it's dramatic, it's epic, it's poetic, and so you've got all the senses. It's a perfect book for this kind of generation. What's easy to overlook is, you know, the point that on one hand, this is all Satan's idea. This is not God's idea. This is how it starts, that Job just gets hammered in every way. I mean, if you read through this book, he gets hammered just in every dimension of his life. Satan does all of it. God is not actively causing it. He's not creating it. And the Bible is very clear. God hates evil. God hates sin. God hates suffering. God hates brokenness. Remember, when God created the world, it was without evil. It was without suffering. It was without trial or labor or toil, sweat or death. These things came as a result of sin, which was our choice. But on the other hand, and this is key, on one hand, you have God. He does not create evil. He does not, he does not uh, play an active role in this suffering uh, of Job. He does not create it. He does not cause it. Yet, he's in absolute control. I mean, it's clear here, here, Satan and God, they're not two equal opposing forces. That's not what you've got here, and they're arguing or fighting against each other. God is in total control. Even Satan is still submissive. God is in total control. This is really important. If you look carefully, on one hand, he says, very well. He allows the suffering. But on the other hand, he says, well, but you can't go this far. I want, I want you to go this far. You can go this far, but you can't go this far. You can do this, but you can't do that. And he does that throughout the book. He says, right now, I only want you to go this far. And, and Satan, even Satan, he can't go any further than that. Now, the thing about this, in our world, there's a lot of brokenness. We see violence, war, oppression, injustice. There's just a lot of disease and, and death. But you have to look at it from God's perspective. He is limiting the violence. Even this is a limiting. God takes his hand off of that. You have far more disease, far more brokenness, far more violence, far more pain. So obviously when we're sitting here, we're saying, well, why does he allow it at all? And here's the answer. What's the title of this series? God allows Satan. God allows evil to the degree that it accomplishes God's plan to redeem all of it. That it would glorify, that God's glory would be advanced. God allows 
the evil. God allows the pain. God allows the brokenness only to the degree that it would accomplish his plan. And all the while, Satan's think he's accomplishing his own plan. You see that? He only allows Satan to do the very opposite of what Satan ultimately wants to accomplish. He's working through the brokenness. God doesn't work despite the brokenness and sin and humiliation and death. He works through it. If you're new or visiting, that's the meaning of our series. That's the purpose of our series. We see it all through the Old Testament. We've been looking for the last probably season, uh, passages in the Bible throughout the Old Testament from Genesis up until here where God is just working through just hardship and brokenness. He's working through it to bring about a greater salvation, a greater joy, a greater delight. Now, Satan, he's thinking, yes, now I can literally raise hell. And I'm going to turn these godly people against God, and I'm going to mock God, because that's what he wants, ultimately. But God is actually using this suffering not to ruin Job, but to actually build Job. Satan, he's all evil. And yet even there, he's got limits. God has total control. Now, you've got to hang with me on this, because if it's true of Job, if it's true that this is the case with Job, then one, it also applies to us. This is how God works with us. This is how God works in us today. God is still in control. God is not agnostic. He's not indifferent towards our situations. He's not powerless towards our situation, which goes against a non-religious perspective. That's what this passage is saying, like, like Richard Dawkins. And at the same time, he's not cruel. He's not unjust. And he's not using this suffering to punish us. It's purposeful suffering. Because if he's not doing it because he's, he's, if he's doing it because he's not cruel and he's not unjust and he's not powerless, there must be a wisdom, there must be a power, there must be a purpose for suffering other than that. So on one hand, we go against the non-religious view. On the other hand, we go against the religious view. God is doing 10,000 things right now for his glory and for our good to do away with evil once and for all, forever, for all time. Satan's intent, what is Satan? He is out, he's just to ruin our work, ruin our families, ruin our lives, destroy everything, take away everything that you love, your sense of peace, your sense of rest, your sense of delight, joy, your health, your life. You see this in the book of Job, and yet God only uses it to make Job great. We are still talking about Job, not because he didn't suffer, and not because he didn't handle it well, but because he did suffer. And even though he was weak in it, I mean, you see later on in the book, Job kind of falls apart later on in the book. Because of his suffering and through it, he lived a big life. God used that suffering ultimately to swallow the evil, to swallow the sin, to swallow the suffering, and ultimately once and for all, for all of our sakes, in our greatness that he builds, in the joy that he builds in us. Keep in mind, God never answers to Job. He never explains why Job had to go through any of this. If you think about it, Christians, I mean, we are always accused of having these kind of simplistic answers. I, I, I think it's a part of our culture in many ways. We're just kind of taught simplistic answers on the way up as you grow older. So when people ask you the really, really complex, nuanced questions, we really don't have answers. And then we're too prideful and arrogant to say we don't have answers. I don't know. I know that it's there. I know that there are answers. I just don't know it. So it's really not a reflection of who God is. It's actually a reflection of us and our arrogance and our pride. But that's, that's another thing, another time. We're always accused of having these simplistic answers regarding the question of suffering. But it's every other answer. Think about it. Every other answer outside of the Bible, that's what's illogical. That's what's unreasonable. That's what's too simple of an answer to one of the most complex, if not the most complex question, or one of the most complex, if not the most complex dimension of our lives, the meaning of suffering. I mean, think about it. I can't believe that in a God that allows suffering, you don't think that's a simplistic answer? You don't think that that has no nuance there? Well, yeah, God exists, suffering exists, so God must be powerless, or God must be evil, or God must be unjust. You don't think that's a simplistic answer? That's, that's not too simplistic of an answer to, to one of the most complex, nuanced questions in life. The Bible says God is all-powerful and all-wise and involved, and yet he has reasons for suffering that he doesn't even obligate himself to answer. 
If you look at the book of Job, at one point, Job actually just finally loses it, and he questions God. And although God meets Job right where he is, and although he restores Job, he never actually gives Job an answer to his question of why. What does that tell you? The point of suffering is not to figure out why. I'm not saying that we don't ask. I'm not saying that we can't ask. The point of suffering is just not to figure out why and then get all messed up by the things that we don't know, but to dig deeper and cling to what you do know when you suffer. When Job questions God in that last act, God says to Job, who is this? I'm paraphrasing, but basically what he says is, who is this that's speaking without clarity and without knowledge as if you know? Where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Essentially what he's saying is, can you outknow me? Can you outpurpose what I've purposed? That's what he's asking. Can you control me? Can you own me? No. Well, then trust me. Trust his word. Trust his promises. Trust his love for his people. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day and by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. One of my favorite verses, we never sing it. I don't know why. Be thou my battle shield, sword for my fight. Be thou my dignity, thou my delight. Thou my soul's shelter, thou my high tower. Raise thou me heavenward, O power of my power. Every other view of suffering points at God and says, I demand an explanation. Do you know, they, it's an anecdotal, that when, when Stalin, when Joseph Stalin, probably one of the most cruel leaders of, of the Soviet empire, one of the first and the most cruel, they say that he might have been responsible and accountable for having slaughtered more than people, uh, the number of people who were slaughtered during the Holocaust, during the Jewish Holocaust. And that was his own people. They said that Stalin, who was at one point a seminary entrant, do you know that? At his death, on his deathbed, they said that before he gave up his last breath, he lifted up his fist to the sky, and then he passed. We all say, explain this to me. The Bible is the only view that doesn't demand an explanation and then lets God be God. Oh, power of my power. That's the first point. The second point, that's the longest. The second point is verse eight. God says, God says, Job loves me. He is my servant. He fears me. In the Old Testament, that word fear, it's not like a fear in a horror film or like an abusive parent. It's about being awestruck in a way that you just fall in love. You ever been through that? You were awestruck to the point of just love and delight. God says, Job, he has that kind of love for me. He fears me, and so that's why, I mean, we serve that which we love, and so he serves me. And Satan says, he doesn't love you. He, doesn't fe- he fears you, and he serves you because you've kind of set him apart. you put a hedge around him. You've protected everything. You've given him. You just let him thrive. you blessed him. That's what he loves. He loves success and wealth and his family like everybody else. He loves his health. So in verse 13, Job loses his oxen and his donkeys and his servants. Verse 16, he loses his sheep and his servants. Verse 17, he loses his camels and his servants. Verse 18, he loses all of his children. Remember, this is an agrarian culture. So you're in, in an agrarian culture, especially in ancient times, your livestock, your land, your family, your sons, that was your economy. That was everything to you. And Job lost, in one instance, he lost his farm and he lost his family. He went bankrupt essentially overnight. Why? The devil contends to God, Job is not coming to you for you. He's coming to you for things. You take away those things, he will not come to you anymore. He will be gone. Look, I get it. Do you know, do you know how many people come to me? I mean, little old church, right? Come to me and they say in the beginning, oh, I love this church. I love this community. I'm all about mission. I'm all about values. I'm all about these things. But then the moment 
you don't agree with them, the moment you challenge them, the moment you challenge something that they love, the moment you call them out, the moment you don't give them what they're actually really looking for, and there's a whole series of things that they could be looking for from me or from this church. They say, I hate this church. I hate this community. I was never about this mission. I don't agree with these values. That's what they say. You see that? I wasn't born yesterday. Neither were you, right? People do that to you all the time. They come to you for things, but they say, I love you, right? All of you, those of you working in the corporate field, you know how it's, I love this dude, I love this guy, I love this bro, right? But at the end of the day, they're coming to you for things. Maybe you're a good worker. Maybe you provide, you do certain things really, really well. We all have a little bit of this in us. I mean, you can say, well, how can, how can, you know, how can people be like this? We're all like this. And we're a lot like this towards God because most of us, we don't go to God for things. When you're honest, we don't go to God for God, I mean. We go to God for things. I worked at a large Fortune 100 company for years. You know, it's interesting because they'll say, people say they're all about the values. They're all about the company. They're all about the, you know, I'm all about this stuff, our initiatives. I'm all about this place until bonus season. When bonus season comes around, it's interesting because these people that really love this company and they say, man, I love this place. I've been here for 20 years. They look at that. They look at their bonus and all of a sudden, they're like, I hate this company. This company is not for us. You know, they say they love their people. They don't really, it's all lies. They're just using us. They just want things from us. That's what we say. We never really truly love anyone. We're just using each other for what we really love. Maybe it's affirmation. Maybe it's status. And anytime you do that, anytime, if that's you, anytime we do that, we're really, what we're really doing is we're objectifying that relationship. We are dehumanizing that relationship. It's now a thing that we really love, and it's projected onto a person, which is why we say, I love you. And you may genuinely feel that way, but really what you're doing is what you love is the affirmation or the approval, right? Or the intimacy. That's what we're saying. But think about this. Well, if that's you and you're doing that, you're dehumanizing that relationship, but then you're also dehumanizing yourself. Why? Because you are going to do whatever it takes to get that from that person. You're going to become a liar. You're going to become a cheater, a manipulator, an exploiter. You are using this person. You're doing it because it's ultimately going to increase you or your sense of worth or make you feel better about yourself. In the end, you're becoming more and more like Satan. You see that? You're dehumanizing yourself. You're becoming more and more cynical. So what happens is people like that, when you live in that kind of cycle, you come to church and you see people worshiping God and you say, I could see right through you because I saw you last night. (laughs) You were where I was last night. You are fake. You're just using church. You're just using God. You almost sense this kind of deep self-righteousness and selfishness that develops here and you see everybody through that lens of selfishness. So you think, you know, you think about it, right? Now, how do you become more human? Why did God take everything away from Job? Because sometimes, and here, this is the answer, because sometimes I know that serving God, we're serving God because it's easy. You have your youth, you have your health, you have some wealth, you're building some wealth here, things are going well. You're young, you're beautiful, it's easy. But unless you're serving God for nothing, You're not serving God at all. You're serving yourself. That's the truth. Maybe right now it's easy to say I love God, but everyone here in this room has a breaking point. Even Job did. Later in the book, Job has a breaking point. We all have that one part and point in our lives where we kind of cross that line. You know, you, you can take it when this suffering happens and then this suffering and then this suffering. And what happens is at some point you cross the line and you say, I've had enough. Why are you doing this to me right now? We all have that one thing that if you lose it, we say, why? It's at that point. And for some of us, it doesn't happen like overnight. For Job, it happened all at once. For some of us, it extends over time. The more you accumulate wealth and and material goods and power or titles or acclaim or approval, whatever it is that you're building, your reputation, there's also an equal amount of pressure that starts to build, you see, and, and that's when you're really supposed to hold fast. That's what you're supposed to anchor 
deeper and dig deeper. When you've lost big, you need to double down on your relationship with God as your wealth, as your security, as your lover, as your home, as your life. That's what it means to fear God. That's what it means to serve God. That's what it means to love God. You know, we, we sing a praise song. We say, I trade my treasure and all my rewards, Jesus, to know you and then know you more. To trust God and his character and his word, his promises. To come to God for God. To come to God as God. That's what we're called to do. Well, what do you do? What do you learn? If you want to grow in righteousness, if you want to grow in compassion, if you want to grow in integrity, if you want to grow in love, and if you want to genuinely love God for God and love other people, not because you want something from them, but because you have, they have some intrinsic value in themselves, the only way that's going to happen really is through suffering, believe it or not. Because there's so much selfishness in us. There's so, we're sinful. There's so much selfishness and self-righteousness. To be able to break through all that, what does God do? We go through suffering. Satan says, take away his career. Take away his wealth. I mean, that's essentially what happened here. They, God just kind of ruined his career in a sense. Take away his career. Take away his wealth. Take away his family, and he will turn from you. And he will. And, and, and what God does, God allows Satan to take it away, and yet, Job in this passage, at this point, he's steady. In verse 20, he falls to the ground and he worships. In other words, here, Job still praises God. Satan torments him. And the book of Job, it shows us that even though God doesn't owe us answers, he's present, he's involved, and he is sufficient in our suffering. So what does Job do? What does he say? One, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground in worship. Now, if you saw somebody who says they're a believer or who says they're a Christian one day and something happens to them tragic and you see them and they tear their robe and they shave their head and they fall to the ground and they're just like kind of flailing around, you're likely to say, well, I mean, you're not acting like a Christian. That's what you'd say. I mean, I, I get that you're sad, but where is your hope? Where is your hopefulness here? I mean, in the Western church, we tend to think that being a Christian means you have to kind of grit your teeth, clench your fists, and say, it's, it, no matter how bad you say, oh, it's all good. We say that, right? It is well with my soul, right? God is good all the time. You ever hear that? I, I, like, you know, it's a, it's, it's, we're, we're the whole, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. You know, you hear that, right? It's kind of like Dr. Pangloss. Uh, for those of you who are readers, remember the Candide, Voltaire, Dr. Pangloss? You know, he's, he's constantly, you know, he goes, he gets bit by a snake. He's, he's getting all this stuff happen to him, and, and ultimately he dies, but he's to the end. It's all good. He says it's all good. Look at Job. Is he like that? No. He is just emotional and raw. I mean, he shaves his head, dramatic, falls to the ground, tears his robe. He, he, he doesn't have it together. There's this kind of authentic genuine realness in his expression of pain and loss. On one hand, the book of Job is dedicated to, one, the inevitability of suffering. Suffering has, is equal opportunity. There is, doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about your status, your wealth, your education, how many children you have, your race, your economy, who you are, whose kid you are, what you believe. But the book of Job says you can grieve. You can cry. You can fall to the ground. You can flail. Job did that. Verse 22, he did that. Verse 22 says, he did not sin by charging God with his wrongdoing, with any wrongdoing. So, on, on, so suffering is inevitable, and when it hits us, there is a grieving. Without sin. And yet, on the other hand, it means, that means that we don't say, this is God's fault. I mean, all this is mine, and God took it from me. You can fall to the ground, tear your clothes, shave your head, just flail around, mourn and wail and weep. And it says, Job didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
that there is an extent and a limit even to your grieving where you don't cross a line, you don't say, no, this is your fault, like Stalin in his bed saying, explain this. What does Job say? Well, he doesn't say, you know, all this was mine, you took it away from me. I worked so hard for it, and in one day, you just kind of ruined all of it. You know what he says in verse 20? I was naked when I came from my mother's room, womb, and naked will I depart. In other words, I came into the world with nothing. I was helpless, vulnerable. Look at the wisdom here. He says, I was, I was nothing when I came in. And that means that everything that I accumulated is by God's sheer grace. He just chose to give it to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't, I know I worked hard, but it's by God's sheer grace that I got anything. It was given to me. And so essentially, where I am right now is pretty much how I came and really how I'm going to go. And that's the second thing that you learn. That's the second thing that we do, that if you build your life on what you made, what you've accomplished, what you have, I mean, this is who I am. I have power and I have wealth. I have things. I have status. I have a good reputation. Look what I've done. Well, then suffering's always going to ruin the party for you. It's always going to ruin your life. It's going to make you feel like you're less than what you are or who you are when God really intended to use that suffering to make you more of who you are, more than what you are. You will never recover if you're building your life on what you've done or what you have or what you've built in a sense. Job's wife later on in the book says, curse God and die. If you're just a religious person and you're suffering, you're going to curse God or you're going to just beat yourself up. You're going to curse yourself. But that second lesson is if you build your life on your relationship with God, it's not that money is not important. It's not that your career is not important. It's not that your things are not important. It's not like your family is not important. But you see God as the ultimate embodiment of all those things combined. So money is not is important, keeps you alive, keeps you sustained. But it's not an end in itself because God's love is worth far more than your wealth. So even if you lose your wealth, you're still rich. You're still wealthy in your, with the love of God. Your status is not an end in itself. Your reputation is not an end in itself because you are God's child. That is the ultimate status. That is the only reputation that you need to garner. And you didn't even do anything to earn it. God gave that to you in Jesus. You see that? So... So suffering is designed to do what? It is designed to drive you deeper, to drive you deeper like an anchor into the source of your joy, whatever it is that you delight in. And so if wealth, if your wealth is your source of your joy and you lose your wealth, then what happens? Then you lose your joy, you lose your delight. It's gonna drive you into anxiety and stress, deeper into the abyss because there's nothing deeper than wealth. And unfortunately, your wealth is just only so deep. You see that? And so when the storm comes and it hits, you're just kind of flailing around. You see that? If, if your source of joy is, uh, I mean, parents, let's say it this way. If your relationship with God is your source of joy and you lose your wealth, what does it do? Well, it's going to drive you into, drive that anchor deeper into what? Your source of joy, which is what? Your relationship with God, because he is your source of joy. I mean, parents, you would understand. Your kids, they love toys. They love toys. They love pets. They love animals, right? They love YouTube. They love Cocoa Melon. They love their iPad. But when there's pain, when there's like real hurt, do they want to drive deeper into Cocoa Melon? Right? It's funny, right? But that's how we are as adults, too. It's just more sophisticated cocoa melon. Right? They don't go to cocoa melon. They don't go, I'm suffering, mom, iPad. I mean, then maybe they do say that. I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, they, they say, I, I'm suffering. They don't drive deeper into their toys. What do they do? They go straight to you, and they cry, and they hold me. I want to be held. That's what Job is doing. It's what we are called to do. He's doubling down. 
He's anchoring deeper into his source of joy, who is God, who we call Father. That's how you deal with it. That's how Satan loses. That's how Satan is defeated. He thought, if I just do this, oh, it's going to be glorious. I will mock God because his people, these he says, Job is this godly man, and he's going to turn from him, and so I will mock him. I will put it in his face. And Job, after losing everything, falls to the ground, and he, and he tears his robe, and Satan says, yes, yes, he's right there. He's right on the brink. And he says, naked, I came. Naked, I will go. Wow. That's how Satan is defeated. That's how Satan is using your suffering to ruin you, but then it gets turned on its head, and then he gets crushed. He gets crushed. See that? You need to claim some of your territory back from that grip that Satan and all of his torment and all the struggles and the suffering that you're enduring, and it has shaped you Changed some of you to some degree. I mean, some of you, you've been through a lot. Guys, I mean, I'm not saying this. I've been through a lot. So I'm suffering with you, and I'm telling you, I think I'm credible enough. I'm a bit older than you, so I think I've been through enough stuff that I can say this. It's going to get worse for you. you got to dig down deeper. And, and if you do, that's how you deal with it. You see, that's, you gotta, because if you haven't dug down deep enough, then what happens is then, then you, you've kind of given up some of your heart's territory to Satan. Oh, and he delights in that. That's what, that's his thing, you see. You gotta claim some of that territory back from your heart for the Lord, for your sake, for God's glory. And so God worked through Job's brokenness to make him great. And if he can do that through Job, you don't think he could do that through, for you and through you? Let's pray. Ah, uh, you know, I'm not going to end it like that, right? Come on, friends. If you've been at Metro for a while, you know that I would never end a sermon like that. You know why? Because in the end, even Job wasn't that great. And Job had a breaking point. He definitely wasn't great, not throughout the entire narrative. Job had a breaking point, and he didn't have the resources that we have. He didn't see the full story. He, God didn't give him any answers. It's why eventually he ends up questioning God. But we have the entire story. We see the entire arc, the story arc of Job in its fulfillment, and we can anchor into that. You see, Satan, he says, Job never loved you. Take away the suffering, he will walk away. Hmm, that's awfully familiar. <clears throat> Where have we heard that before? In the first book of the Bible in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes to us. Satan comes to Eve, and he says, God never really loved you, because if he did, why would he withhold this good thing from you? Look at that fruit. It's desirable. You know, Eve says it's desirable for, for gaining wisdom. It's pleasing to the eye. It looks useful. Why would God withhold that from you? That's a good thing. God's using you. God is trying to keep you down. You see that? Think about this. In the book of Job, Satan says to God, Job never really loved you. He's using you. And there's actually some truth in that. But God says, no, Job is stand up because he is the anchor. You see that? He is holding him up. Even though he knew Job's going to fail, he still says Job is righteous. Why? Because he is Job's righteousness. You see that? But in the garden, Satan says to us, God is holding us back. God is using you. And that was a complete and total lie. And we believed it. We believed it. We bought into it. We believed that God would never get you where you need to go, that God would never get you where you want to go, that you will never be happy trusting God. And we are living like that today. In this room, we have a collection of people who are suffering and in the process, every day tempted, does God really have my best interests in mind? You see that? And, and it's why we're so quick. We act on this every day. We are so quick to ignore God in all the good times, use God in every anxious moment, and blame God every time something goes wrong because you don't trust God. 
So God is always kind of placed on the periphery. It's easy to come here and be reminded of things, but we forget the moment we walk out, don't we? We just place God right back out in the periphery from lunch on. That's what happens. But I'm a Christian. Yes, I know. Maybe That means that maybe at one level, just like Job, at one level, he trusted God. And yet there was a breaking point. You see, not at the level of that breaking point of suffering, not at the level of that breaking point of sacrifice, not at that level of that breaking point of giving. You see that? Because in the most important areas of our lives, in that pressure cooker crucible area, such as family and building a home and building a life and building a career, well, I need wealth. Well, then you're, not, you're never going to give. Well, I need status. I need a reputation. Well, then you're never going to connect with people who are utterly different than you. Well, I need my career. Well, then you're never going to speak up and be a voice for other people when you are in power. You see that? But I need the approval of other people. Well, then you're never going to challenge those people. You see that? You're still believing the lie that these things are more important than God. So what do you need? You need a greater assurance that God is present and that he loves his people, that your suffering is not a penalty in a way that transcends your need for all those other things, to put those things in some ways in the periphery. You may need it, but it's in the periphery so that your relationship with God becomes core. It becomes central. In other words, you need to know a truth that completely overwhelms and overcomes the lie. What is that truth? You notice something? In the Old Testament, lots of godly men, lots of prophets and priests and kings, when they're suffering, they always cry out, why? Why does this happen? But in the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul, Peter, all the apostles, John. They're, I mean, they suffer immensely. And yet they never cry out. They never complain. Paul says, I rejoice. That's what he says. You don't see them questioning God ever. Why? Ultimately, why? You ever notice that? Why is that? It's because centuries after Job, there was one prophet. There was one godly man who did. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ is in the wilderness and he hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he's weak, and Satan starts to torment him. Jesus has nothing. He has given up all of his status. He has given up the kingdom. He has come down. He is incarnate in our world, and Satan torments him, and he tries to get Jesus to buy into the lie that God is not out for his own good, that he could have kingdoms and, and self-preservation and all this stuff without ever having to go to the cross, without ever having to suffer. He says, I can give this to you. If you just bow down before me, I will give this to you, and you won't ever have to suffer again. You see that? But each time, what does Jesus do? He relies on the word of God, truth, all the way through his life journey until you get to the cross. This is Jesus Christ, the most perfect man that ever walked the earth. He is the perfect Job, the greater Job. Never once used God, never once, uh, he just loves it. He goes to God for God, truly. God is central in his life. And yet what happened to him? Oh, he suffered immensely. He got the cross. And on the cross, I mean, Job, he tore his robe. Jesus Christ was stripped naked. Job, he shaved his head. Jesus Christ received a crown of thorns on his head. For Job, suffering just kind of happened to him, but for Jesus, he offered himself. He willingly and gladly suffered for his people, and so on the cross, the wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And there he cries out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, when Job was at his lowest point, he felt abandoned by God, but he wasn't. God was present. In fact, he was limiting the suffering. He had total control, and the suffering was used to build Job's view of God, to expand his range of his perspective on God in a way that actually made him great. We are still talking about Job today as a result, but Jesus Christ, he is at the lowest point of his life as well, and, and he has lost his wealth, ultimate wealth. He has lost ultimate treasure. The center of his being is, is God himself, and he has abandoned him, so he's lost his wealth. He has lost his home. He has lost his security. He has lost everything. He has gone completely bankrupt, so to speak. God has allowed his own son to become crushed for our sins. He allowed it, and there was no limit. He was crushed by evil, totally destroyed. Why? So that he could destroy evil forever. You see that? God working through that brokenness. No one understands suffering more than the God of the Bible, who sent his own son to die 
And yet, do you know Jesus Christ? To the end, as he's being abandoned by God, he still trusted God to the end. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He was still praying to God. He was still trusting in God's promise. You see that? Even as he died, he cries. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus is crying out. He suffered the ultimate oppression, the ultimate injustice, the ultimate violence, the ultimate bankruptcy, the ultimate abyss. Why? Why would God do that? I mean, to make Jesus better, he was already holy. He was already perfect. So why? It was to make us better, to, to grow us, to make us holy, to make us more like Christ so that we could have the assurance we could have the truth that transcends all the lies. You see that? I mean, for those of you who are suffering, it's confusing. It's disorienting. We're like, we don't have any idea why. Jesus died to be that living evidence that your suffering is not a punishment. Why? Because he took our punishment. He took our penalty. God is not faithful in your suffering. You can trust him. He works through the brokenness of Jesus to bring about the ultimate salvation, to bring about the, that joy of being in Christ goes along with his victory and his re resurrection. We're going to be celebrating that in a few weeks at Easter. That's what it's about. That's why we call it Resurrection Sunday. That joy will one day consummate itself and subsume every suffering. And you know what it says? That one day God himself, Jesus himself, will wipe away your tears. You will never cry again. You don't just try to be like Job, oh, it's all good. There's always a breaking point. You need to see the ultimate Job to ward off every lie, to ward off every temptation to walk away from God and question his love. And here's the key. Here's the key. Look at everything that we gain by loving God. What did Jesus gain by loving us? Nothing. He died. Well, then why did he love us? The cross is the evidence that Jesus is not using us. That he loves us because we have some intrinsic value to him. He just loves us. And to the degree that you see Jesus loving you and inviting you as you are in yourself, broken and sinful, you will love Jesus for who he is as he is in himself. King, Lord, Savior, and that will shape you in his love. Dig deep when you suffer. Hold fast to that anchor, the anchor of the cross. Hold fast to Christ, to Jesus. I hope he is personal to you and real to you, as real, if not more real, than your suffering. Let's pray together.